There are a number of filmmakers whose stature in the medium is so grand that, if this podcast goes on long enough, my lack of an episode on one of their movies is going to look like a deliberate avoidance. Charlie Chaplin, possibly the first filmmaker to be perceived as an artist on the same footing as any painter, poet, or symphonic composer you could name, is certainly one of those. So, when I decided that I was going to finally do a Chaplin film, the next question was which one to cover. Uh, the Great Dictator seems like one of those works that always feels painfully relevant to any historical era it is re-examined in, but especially lately since fascists are making a comeback hooray. Chaplin himself said that the Gold Rush was his masterpiece, and, well, everything I said about the Great Dictator's relevance applies pretty aptly to modern times as well. However, I'm a basic bitch, and City Lights is my favorite Chaplin film, so we're going to talk about that one. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Alright, joining me on this one is my sister Cheryl. Hi! And my brother Sylvan. Hello. I sat Sylvan down and made him watch The Great Dictator at some point or another. Don't know if this is your first Chaplin film, Cheryl. Was this your first Chaplin film? It is. Or was. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right, so what's your hot take? It was very pretty, and I really enjoy his shoes. You do comment on several times that you liked his floppy cartoon clown shoes. It reminds me of when I go bowling, and I always pick the wrong size, but I have too much social anxiety to be like, these are too big. So I just walk around with them slapping around. I'd imagine that the shoes was like one of those things in this film, like when, when we uh, did A Night at the Opera, we were like, oh, so that's where that Looney Tunes trope comes from. Oh, yeah, the shoes, the cane, the hat, I'm like, and the mustache. I'm like, oh, all of those weird cartoon vegetables make sense now. All right, plot recap. I mean, this film is very episodic. It does have an overarching plot, but it goes off on digressions that are only sort of related to the main thrust. Anyways... The opening shot is citizens and dignitaries are assembled for the unveiling of a new monument to peace and prosperity, which must have felt pretty rich in 1931. After droning speeches, done with loopy sound effects, the veil is lifted to reveal that the tramp is asleep in the lap of one of the sculpted figures. After several minutes of slapstick, he manages to escape the assembly's wrath to perambulate around the city. He rebukes two newsboys who taunt him for his shabbiness while coyly admiring a nude statue while having a almost fatal encounter with a sidewalk elevator. I'd also like to point out that uh, while the um, slapstick is going on in the statue, he severely rips his pants, and uh, yeah, like they don't forget about that. Every time he puts those pants back on, the rip's in the same place. I thought that was kind of cool and unexpected. Charlie Chaplin is a very meticulous director. We will be going into that later. <laughs> <laughs> The tramp encounters a beautiful flower girl on a street corner and in the course of buying a flower realizes that she is blind. He is instantly smitten to the point where while he's creeping on her she just kind of douses him because she can't see him. The girl mistakes the tramp for a wealthy man when the door of a chauffeured automobile slams shut as he departs. That evening, the tramp saves a drunken millionaire from committing suicide. The millionaire takes the tramp, his new best friend, back to his mansion for champagne. Then, after another thwarted suicide attempt, he just, I guess when this guy is drunk, he just instantly tries to kill himself, which made Cheryl wonder what he does for a living. That's blood money, Ryan. No two ways about it. I think it was implied his marriage had recently fallen apart. Yes, there is a bit where he sees a picture of a woman and just throws the frame away. She left because of the blood money. Well, anyways, the drunken millionaire takes the tramp out for a night on the town. 
After helping the millionaire home the next morning, the tramp sees the flower girl en route to her street corner. He gets some money from the millionaire and catches up to the girl, buying all of her flowers and giving her $10, which is way more than he needed to, after driving home in the millionaire's car. After the tramp leaves, the flower girl tells her grandmother about her kind and wealthy friend. Meanwhile, the tramp returns to the mansion where the millionaire, now sober, does not remember the tramp and has him thrown out. Later that day, the millionaire is once again intoxicated and, seeing the tramp on the street, invites him home for a lavish party. Because he only recognizes the tramp when he's drunk, and as Sylvan puts it, that is not how drunk works. <laughs> I, I like this, uh, the, the rules of this world though, I'll accept it. Cheryl speculates that he does recognize the tramp when he's sober, but does not want to admit it. I mean, you know, he's just too good for him when he's sober. I, I don't know this man. I mean, headcanon accepted for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that works. The next morning, history repeats itself. The millionaire is again sober, and the tramp is again out on his ear. Wakes up in the same bed as him, and... Yeah, the tramp is equally surprised that he is not recognized once again. He does not figure this out ever. On his lunch break, he brings the girl groceries while the grandmother is out selling flowers. To entertain her, the tramp reads a newspaper aloud. In it is a story about a Viennese doctor's blindness cure. The girl is excited, saying that, you know, hey, I'd be able to see you if I have my blindness cured. And the tramp is struck by what should happen should she gain her eyesight and discover he is not the wealthy man she imagines. He also finds an eviction notice the girl's grandmother has hidden from her. As he leaves, he promises the girl that he will pay the rent. The tramp returns to work. He is shoveling horse manure on the street because it's 1931. But he is late and finds himself fired. He's been late too many times. At this point, a boxer notices him in dire straits and offers to spot him some money in a fake bout. They will go easy on each other and then split the kitty 50-50. However, the boxer flees upon learning that he is about to be arrested and the fight promoter instantly replaces him with a no-nonsense fighter who knocks the tramp out despite the tramp's creative and nimble efforts to keep out of reach, most of which involves hiding behind the referee. Very Bugs Bunny. I, I get things now. References and such. <laughs> the tramp encounters the drunken millionaire a third time and is again invited back to the mansion. The tramp relates the girl's plight and the millionaire gives him money for her operation. About a thousand dollars, which the tramp is delighted by. Alas, burglars knock the millionaire out and take the rest of his money. The police find the tramp with the money given to him by the millionaire, who, because of the knock on the head, does not remember handing it over to the tramp or the tramp at all. The tramp evades the police long enough to get the money to the girl, telling her that he will be going away for a while. In due course, he is apprehended and thrown in prison. Months later, the tramp is released. He goes to the girl's customary street corner, but she is not there. We then learn that the girl, her sight restored, now runs a very busy flower shop with her grandmother, but she has not forgotten her mysterious benefactor, whom she imagines to be a young, rich, handsome man. When an elegant young man enters the shop, she wonders for a moment whether he has returned. The tramp then happens by the shop where the girl is arranging flowers in the window. He stoops to retrieve a flower discarded in the gutter, and after a brief skirmish with some newsboys with the pea shooter, he turns to the shop's window through which he suddenly sees her, who has been watching him without, of course, knowing who he is. At the sight of her, he is frozen for a few moments, then breaks into a broad smile. The girl is amused by this and giggles to her employee that, that she's made a conquest. 
Via pantomime through the glass, she offers him a new flower to replace the crushed one that he took from the gutter and was falling apart while he was smiling at her. And she also offers to spot him some loose change. Suddenly embarrassed, the tramp tries to shuffle away, but the girl steps up to the shop door and just pulls him back, offers him the flower, which he shyly accepts. She then takes his hand and presses the coin into it, and at this point, her condescending smile shifts to a look of puzzlement as she recognizes him through touch. She runs her fingers along his arm, his shoulder, his lapels, and then gasps, You... The tramp nods and then asks if she can see again. She replies that she can and presses her hand to his heart with a tearful smile. Relieved and elated, the tramp smiles back, very childish grin, and we fade to black. And they're married and their money troubles are solved and it's happily ever after. Sure, let's go with that. Also, we never find out what happens to the millionaire who gets suicidal every time he drinks, but I suppose we can fill that in ourselves. The butler does not take very good care of him at all. Oh no, not at all. I think the butler stands to inherit everything. (laughs) I mean, like, there were guys in that room hopping up and down, and like, he just kept walking through. Yeah, there there are some questions that could be asked about the millionaire's life and his relationships. I'm saying it was an inside job, and, and those guys didn't just wa- randomly wander in on their own. Also headcanon accepted. <laughs> you know, this film's going to be public domain pretty soon. We could, could shoot our own film about the millionaire's predicament from his perspective. Oh, everybody I imagine would love to see the movie that we put together. We're like, we're so awkward and shy, and it's painful sometimes. Let's make a movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be great. <laughs> yeah, the development of City Lights. In early 1928, Chaplin began writing a follow-up to The Circus with Harry Carr. The initial concept was about a circus clown who suddenly goes blind and, in a bid to conceal this from his daughter, pretends that his many accidents are deliberate pratfalls for an upcoming act. Through a grueling process, the script took the form that we see in the film. Oh, the God. blind clown <laughs> turning into the flower girl. It was revised a lot. Yeah, I, Sounds like it. I can only imagine how, like, horrible that movie would be for people, like, in that, like, I can't imagine it would be tasteful. It makes me think of Jerry Lewis's never-released Holocaust clown movie. Oh, God. All of those words I understand separately, but together... You haven't heard about this. No. No. Okay, the final scene is the Jews being led to the gas chambers, and Jerry Lewis, the clown, is, like, frantically juggling to entertain the children so they don't know what's going to happen to them. Is he supposed to be painted as, like, heroic, or...? Well, the film was never released because Jerry Lewis, after he finished the film, decided that this was a horrible mistake and it should never see the light of day. Okay. But not while he was filming it? Hey, he caught on at some point. But it got that far? (laughs) Okay, anyways, Chaplin and Carr spent a great deal of time on the story's ending. Chaplin considered it to be the emotional heart of the film, and each moment in the scene is described in exhaustive detail in the film script. 
for the Tramp's Companion, Chaplin's first instinct was to have it be a black newsboy. Chaplin then remembered an unused concept for one of the Tramp's two-reelers from, you know, back in the 1910s. The premise was that two millionaires would pick up the Tramp in his hovel at the city dump, show him a marvelous and extravagant good time in an expensive nightclub, and then deposit him back at the dump before daybreak, leaving a confused and hungover Tramp wondering if these events happened at all. Gradually, this grew into the millionaire who only recognizes the Tramp when he is drunk. Pre-production for this film began in May of 1928. At this point, I'd like to point out that this film came out in 1931. Chaplin hired Australian art director Henry Clark to design the sets, and Chaplin had all of the buildings erected on sound stages in his own studio. Chaplin first wanted to mimic Parisian architecture, but ultimately decided to cherry-pick various styles from all over the world. Chaplin spent $1.5 million of his own money making the movie. An artificial river covering five acres cost $15,000 to construct, while the two streets in the business section set him back $100,000. On August 28th of 1928, Chaplin's mother died. Distraught, Chaplin halted production until the fall. Aww. After the wild success of The Jazz Singer in 1927, theater owners and United Artists executives began pressuring Chaplin to make City Lights a sound film. Convinced that talkies were a passing fad, Chaplin refused. By 1929, no Hollywood studio was producing sound films anymore. Chaplin, oh, however, silent films, you mean? Yeah, sorry. By 1929, no Hollywood studio was, pr was producing silent films anymore. Uh, Chaplin decided to persevere, figuring that his massive level of celebrity would allow him to get away with it. Did it go well? Well, he did make the movie. Yeah, we're, we're, we're getting there. Chaplin began auditioning actresses to play the blind flower girl in the fall when production resumed, but was unimpressed with all of them. He then bumped into his casual acquaintance, Virginia Sherrill, who casually asked <laughs> if he was working on anything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> After a few screen tests, she signed on in November. A lot of people credit her for getting the blind girl part because she was actually legally blind. Oh, that's nice! I like that! I mean, I, I did feel like it wasn't badly done, you know? Like, especially in a comedy and an older one. I know, and she got to play, like, being sighted as, like, having sight as well, too, at the end. Like, she did a good job. Usually the jokes about her being blind are not at her expense. She is usually accidentally ruining the tramp's clothing or pouring water on him or being oblivious to the flower pot. But all, falling on his head. And, like, honestly, I feel like if she were just a rain spout, he would be doing the same things. So, like, <laughs> it's all his fault kind of anyway. Yeah, I, I remember reading something a while ago that um actually people who really are blind usually aren't cast to play blind people and things because they're told that sighted audience members won't believe them as blind since they don't exaggerate or act like... They're not convincing to our stereotypes of how blind people behave because they can get around easily. When I think of a stereotype of a blind person, I think of a cartoon mouse with big black glasses and a cup that he jingles around. So I'm like, I don't think that like any human like- Yeah, real life blind people aren't Mr. Magoo. Principal photography for City Lights lasted 180 days. However, because Chaplin was such a perfectionist, he kept his cast and crew on standby for 22 months while he continually revised the movie. This was the main contributor to the film's massively ballooning budget. 
However, he is one of those directors who insisted on retake after retake after retake. The scene where the tramp buys a flower from the blind girl when he first meets her required 342 takes before Chaplin was satisfied. Oh my, oh my god! <laughs> Robert Parrish, who played one of the pea-shooting newsboys, recalled that Chaplin would meticulously act out each character's movements running back and forth between poses. He added that Chaplin seemed to give us back our parts with great reluctance. He probably would have played every role in the movie if he could. I mean, I feel you. I hate group projects. <laughs> Chaplin cast the set designer Henry Clive as the drunk millionaire at first. However, when Clive expressed distaste for climbing into a frigid water tank, Chaplin fired him on the spot and replaced him with Harry Myers. There is some speculation over how that happened. Some people say that Clive was just being difficult. Others say that Clive was coming out of a fever and asked if they could wait a few hours for, you know, the afternoon sun to heat up the water, but Chaplin freaked out on him. It depends on who you ask. Chaplin and Cheryl also had tension on set. Frustrated after hanging around on set for months without shooting anything, Cheryl asked to leave early one day and was promptly fired by an irate Chaplin. Chaplin then hired Georgia Hale, his love interest in The Gold Rush, to replace Cheryl. He even reshot the film's ending with Hale. However, Chaplin eventually figured out that he had made too much of the movie with Cheryl to start over. He then reached out to rehire her, who, realizing her advantageous position and given advice by Hedy Lamarr, held out for a substantial pay raise. <laughs> Chaplin would blame his poor working relationship with Cheryl on himself, admitting that his perfectionism deteriorated into unprofessionalism. Cheryl still had some bitterness years later. When asked if she and Chaplin had an onset affair, she responded that she was 20 at the time, which was far too old for Chaplin's tastes. <laughs> and during the uh, promotion of the circus, Chaplin had an affair with a teenage girl and got her pregnant, and he married her in a shotgun wedding, and it didn't work out, and she ranted the tabloids and told lots of stories about queer perversions on Chaplin's part, and his reputation took a very serious hit. Oh boy. So yeah, all of that surrounding city lights while that was being made. Oh dang. All in all, 314,256 feet of film was shot for City Lights, which was quite a bit for the time period. The least amount of tension was for the boxing scenes. Everybody was having fun that point. <laughs> Chaplin was, was nervous about doing the scenes. He thought that the ringside would be empty, so he invited every single friend that he could find to do it and encouraged everybody else to bring people out just to fill out the seats. However, everyone there was just like laughing and clapping at Chaplin antics, you know, running around, hiding behind the ref, tying the string for the bell around his neck so he has to get up every time he tries to sit down in his corner. So people just started wandering onto set and sitting down and watching. Oh, that's cute! And uh, Cheryl pointed out that that was the only part of the production where she liked Chaplin even a little bit. Oh, I mean, he was fine. He was fine. I think he's talking about the other Cheryl. Oh, I was like, I don't remember saying that he was unlikable. He was great for the movie. <laughs> no, Virginia Cheryl, the actress who played the blind girl. As I mentioned, she they didn't get along. Let's just for now and it'll be Cheryl, my sister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is Asterisk, the first Charlie Chaplin film to have sound, in that it has sound effects and music that was recorded for the film. It still has inner titles and no spoken dialogue. What was it with the speech bit where they all sounded like a like a fly? <laughs> 
Chaplin liked playing with goofy sound effects. You liked it when he was eating the pasta and there was a slide whistle. Well, that's because slide whistles are great. Fly noises are annoying. Well, Chaplin preferred live music for films. By 1930, most theaters had gotten rid of their orchestras. Chaplin didn't get along with the studio musicians and eventually decided to compose the score himself. It was done in six weeks with Arthur Johnston handling the orchestrations and Alfred Newman doing the arrangements. The motif for the flower girl was lifted from La Violetera by Jose Padilla. Chaplin eventually lost a lawsuit over not crediting him. As uh, he should, oh my god. <laughs> the score was a great success and after City Lights came out, Chaplin went back to all of his old two-reelers and his previous films and added music and sound effects to all of them. He greatly re-edited the gold rush in the process of doing this. The score, I think, is pretty impactful. It makes me think of, you know, getting back to Looney Tunes, Carl Starling's music for Looney Tunes. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's quotes everywhere. There's lots of, like, incidental operetta type of things going on while the characters are moving around. They did the How Dry I Am song. Yeah, sure. I was like, oh, the drunk razor from Sniffles the Mouse. <laughs> All right, the release and reception of this film. Uh, Chaplin held an unpublicized preview at LA's Tower Theater for the initial uh, release. The crowd, expecting a drama film and sound, reacted poorly. <laughs> Chaplin began seriously questioning the wisdom of spending a ridiculous amount of money to produce and release a silent film in 1931. Reception at the new Los Angeles theater was more positive. However, the theater's owner stopped the movie halfway through in an attempt to get the audience to take a moment to admire the new building's construction. Furious, <laughs> furious, Chetlin stormed up the walkway to curse out the proprietor with the audience's loud support. <laughs> Albert Einstein attended the screening and according to Chaplin, cried at the ending. A New York premiere was held at the George M. Cohen Theater. Chaplin carefully supervised the screening for this one. <laughs> uh, spending $60,000 out of his own pocket in advertising and demanding half the gross. He also put the ticket prices at a much higher rate than usual, figuring that a film of his quality would command more attention than your typical Hollywood release. City Lights grossed $4.25 million off its $1.5 million budget, making it one of Chaplin's most successful movies. Reviews were mostly positive, and by the time of its 1950 re-release, critics were routinely calling it one of the greatest movies ever made. Oh, that's nice! Good for him! Orson Welles once called City Lights his favorite movie. Stanley Kubrick put it at number five on his personal top ten. Andre Tartakovsky, Akira Kurosawa, George Bernard Shaw, and Roger Ebert also cite it as personal favorites. Federico Fellini cites City Lights as an influence on Knights of Cabarilla in 1957. And Woody Allen based the final scene in Manhattan, 1979, on the City Lights ending. Alan being Alan, the female in the scene is a teenage girl dating a middle-aged man played by Alan. And yes, there are allegations that Alan propositioned her in real life. Mariel Hemingway uh, talked about this as one of the many things that messed her up, but you know, having the last name of Hemingway didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get into the cast of this film. First, I should probably mention Chaplin as the Tramp. Cheryl, you said that you liked his performance in this. I did, unlike my counterpart. <laughs> <laughs> 
I guess I didn't really fully understand Charlie Chapman's eyebrows, like what I was going in for. Because there's like, <laughs> when it was like scenes when it's back out, I'm like, he's not very expressive. But then like you get into it, it's like, oh no, he is. Those are super drawn on way above his eyebrows. <laughs> we did talk about the cakey makeup before we started watching this. I know, right? And like, you were like, oh, he's totally a thirst trap. I'm like, really? Yeah, I mentioned that Chaplin is kind of a handsome man when he's not wearing his, his makeup. And- I've only seen him in makeup, so I, I put in a Google image search because I was curious, and yup. Mm-hmm. And compared him to other silent movie actors, and Buster Keaton's kind of goofy looking, whereas Harold Lloyd is conventionally attractive. The main reason he wears the hat and glasses is to make people not notice how pretty he is. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Chaplin is all movement, and getting back to it, just seeing the way he runs around and capers and does pratfalls and doesn't notice that he's about to plummet to his doom, it makes me think of many Looney Tunes characters, the coyote in particular. Yep, yep. And we already mentioned Virginia Sherrill as the flower girl and how she was pretty convincing as the... <laughs> Blind woman. <laughs> <laughs> And considering that this film came out a very long time ago, it is weirdly not ableist. Yeah, no, I liked that a lot. It is about not as about as not ableist as a 1930s silent film could possibly be expected. Like she was. Yeah, like the only real note is the fact that she does get cured of the blindness. But like she's supporting her grandmother when she gets sick is when they get into financial problems. I liked that part. I was like, oh, cool, she was the breadwinner. Good for her. I also like that they actually took the time to develop the Tramp and the Flower Girl's relationship. Like, he is smitten at first sight, but the storytelling, as episodic as it is, does put the time in and make you realize that, yes, they are actually building a relationship to each other, and they are interacting with each other, and in ways that do feel, like, very relatable and humanistic, which is also very impressive because Chaplin and Cheryl were not getting along. (laughs) And it's a pantomime comedy. Yep, that part too. Alright, next person we should mention is Harry Myers as the drunk millionaire. He was delightful. He really was! Wonderful facial expressions. Still think he did, like, hate crimes or something to get that money. I I love the part where he doesn't realize he's driving. Oh my god! (laughs) You should drive safer. I'm driving? (laughs) Because he is drunk driving the tramp home. Uh, another drunk driving has never been so funny. <laughs> oh, God. Another thing I've decided to head canon is that when he goes off to Europe, <laughs> he's there for a freaking afternoon. He did not go to Europe. Yes, I'm under the impression that the butler erects a soundstage that is scare quotes Europe whenever <laughs> the, the millionaire wishes to travel. Although, as you pointed out by giving us the the setting, we don't know where this is. Maybe they're just in another part of Europe. I know that in England, they often don't consider themselves to be in Europe. Yes, uh, the architecture in City Lights is like, that's a Parisian building, that's Florence, that's London, that's India, that's Beijing, that's New York City. It's, It's all over the place. It's supposed to be a bit of a surreal wonderland. Yeah, next person to mention, uh, I would say, is uh, Al Ernest Garcia as the butler. That dick. (laughs) Uh, He is a chap. I mean, I don't know. I could see being suspicious of the tramp in this situation. But after the third time? Yeah, there's this little creepy guy who keeps coming by and taking advantage of his employer. That's his perspective. He has no reason to think differently. He didn't see the tramp save the guy's life. Twice. He saved his life twice. 
And they don't talk about that with the butler. Shady butler. <laughs> Garcia is a Chaplin regular. He is in many of his two reelers and pretty much all of his films. His last performance is in modern times because he died in 1938 at the age of 51. He's not in The Great Dictator. That's so young! Yeah, Garcia was also, unlike the butler he was playing, a union activist. Yay! Yeah, he was a wobbly who fought on behalf for uh, extras and supporting actors. He helped establish a union for them, aside from, you know, SAG. And the last person I wanted to mention was Hank Mann as the boxer. Is his story seldom told? (laughs) (laughs) You looked a little startled for a second. It took me a moment to get that. (laughs) Uh, Mann is uh, known for being one of the original Keystone Cops. Some credit him with originating the concept. Is that the, like, double time from cartoons with the big hats? Like, is that what a Keystone cop is? Yes. Ha <laughs> Also, you watch the X-Files with Pete a lot. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's lots of random footage of the Keystone cops in the X-Files. Okay, okay. So, yeah, you've seen Hank Mann many a time, except he's wearing <laughs> a big, bushy mustache and driving a big car and falling down a lot. Double time, double time. Yeah. I mean, when we were setting up the, the, the boxing scene, you were expecting him to be like this giant dude oh. in order to offset how short Chaplin is. And you're like, oh, no, that's just a regular guy. Oh, that was me, actually, but yeah. Yes. yeah. yeah. I, I can sort of get it because Chuck Jones is a big Chaplin fan. I think that's very obvious. And yep. the, <laughs> the boxing scene is very clearly recreated unofficially in several Looney Tunes shorts, particularly Jones ones, where Bugs Bunny is forced to box or wrestle. And every time that happens, Bugs Bunny's opponent is uh, like this big lummox guy. Yep. No, not quite so much in City Lights. Getting murdered. Mm-hmm. All right, that brings me to the themes. Uh, First thing I wanted to bring up is class struggle. This is as good a time as any to point out that Charlie Chaplin was born in extreme Dickensian poverty, and I believe that is reflected in his performances even after he became a very rich and successful actor. Income inequality is a recurring element of his work. This is most prevalent in modern times, which is about how increased automation has put skilled labor into a bin of obsolescence, which forces people to just punch a clock and build their lives around a wage and becoming replaceable cogs in a machine. As I mentioned earlier, all stuff that hasn't become any less relatable in 2021. <sighs> <laughs> And a great deal of pointing out this tension meant that Charlie Chaplin would become the highest profile casualty of McCarthyism in the 1950s, eventually resulting in his deportment. Uh, I mean, I thought it was a kind of a nice touch and pretty pointed that, like, the millionaire didn't even notice when he was giving away all of the money for the girl, and it totally turned her life around. Like, she became a successful business owner off of the $1,000 that he didn't even notice he was giving away. Yeah, that's pretty pointed, and also reflected in actual um, uh, rich people. I have some casual acquaintances who worked as, like, bellhops or concierges in hotels that are frequented by millionaires, billionaires, and Hollywood celebrities, and whenever they're handing out tips, they don't even notice they keep paper money on hand to like hand over to like you know waiters and stuff and you never know what you're going to get to them because they're not paying attention to the money while they're handing it out so sometimes they'll give you like three singles or sometimes they'll give you five hundred (sighs) dollars 
<laughs> Aside from certain celebrities, apparently Bill Cosby was a cheap motherfucker. Yeah, okay. That doesn't surprise me. I mean, if that was the worst aspect of his character, I think we'd let it slide, <laughs> but... Alright, the next thing I wanted to bring up was sentimentality. Because a common criticism of Chaplin's work, especially his later work, starting from City Lights onward, is that it is often perceived as being schmaltzy. Chaplin's films take place in a heightened reality reflective of the 19th century romantic movement. And because this is done entirely in pantomime and you have to exaggerate your movements in order to get any point across whatsoever, every emotion is grandiose from mirth to tragedy. That being said, Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton are much less prone to this. Uh, they largely saw themselves as entertainers and showmen, whereas Chaplin considered himself a capital A artist who was doing important work that would endure for generations to come. I mean, but it did, though, right? We watched yeah. it. Yeah, that is true. And uh, frankly, I'm a sucker for the schmaltz, at least in his 1930s and 1940s moments. Oh, yeah, I'm the wrong person to try to critique for something like that, like poking <laughs> to my veins. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned on an earlier podcast, Rachel asked me in the uh, When Harry Met Sally episode what scene in a movie I thought was the most romantic, and she talked about the relationship with Fargo, which is very sweet, the, uh, the, the husband and wife one, and yeah, that was very well thought out, and I felt like such a basic bitch when I said that I, I, I really liked the last scene in City Lights. Oh, that's sweet. I mean, the last time I heard you talk about like romantic scenes in a movie, you you, you mentioned um, it, it was a, from a Godzilla movie. Oh yes, when the uh, pterodactyls and Rodan would rather die together than live apart. Oh, that's beautiful though. <laughs> and memorable because I did not expect that. <laughs> But yeah, the the bit in the ending of City Lights, that is everybody's favorite last scene in a movie. It is the first thing that anyone talks about. It's one of the most famous endings in Hollywood history. But still, every time I watch that movie, the part with the hands touch, it gets me. I will Aww, not. That was nice. And of course, when I watched Manhattan later and they did that scene again, except it's, you know, a guy pushing 50 talking to a 16-year-old. Uh, Cheryl's face is not something we can record for you, sadly. I just don't talk about Woody Allen. It's not going to go well. I mean, every time he comes up on this podcast, I'm like, I, I, I guess I should cover him at some point, but I don't know how. <laughs> also, Rowan Polanski, and I mean... Because I'm a comics nerd, one of Brian Singer's X-Men movies, but we I'm, don't need to. Yeah, I, I don't want to drag anyone into that. We can keep just talking about filmmakers that like we like and respect. And yeah, Chaplin liked them young too, but he's dead, so it's a little easier to talk about it when you're in the when you're talking about it in the past, and he cannot financially benefit from you bringing it up. At the same time, it makes me think of this topic one was mentioned on an episode of The Art Assignment, where she talks about how when someone is gross or shitty or sometimes flat out evil but they made a great work of art that you personally feel a great amount of, of respect and sometimes intensity for the best way to talk about it is not to ignore it or have it overtake everything it's just to you know, point it out, make it a part of the conversation. There's really no way to do it perfectly, but just be emotionally honest about it. And I also think that this is a nuanced thing that, like, it, there's no flat answer that works for every single problematic figure, like, and you, you have to figure out for yourself how to handle it. 
Alright, well, that's everything in my notes. Is there anything that either of you would like to bring up about City Lights before we close things out? I just really want to punch again how fucking gorgeous those sets were. Especially the suicide scene. <laughs> it was really pretty! <laughs> that water was impressive! It was, and I remember uh, when we were watching it, and the, the drunk millionaire was came down there on the suitcase, and he was staggering around, and Sylvan went, that's not gonna end well. <laughs> and he starts tying a rope around his neck, and he's like, oh, it's not supposed to. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he's staggering very close to water. I thought he was gonna accidentally fall in, but nope, that's what he was going for. All right, well, that's one more episode. Thanks for listening, and uh, join us next time.